Get Back to Basics with Judaism 101 with Rabbi Michael Katz. Hi, and a very good afternoon to you. Wonderful to be in your company this afternoon. A little bit uh, miserable, the weather outside today, but uh, I believe it's going to be sunny tomorrow and things will start looking up in the run-up to Rosh Hashanah. And of course, we are today on the 13th day of Elul, just over two weeks away from that uh, awesome day of Rosh Hashanah, the days of Rosh Hashanah. And, uh, of course, in getting our heads around it and getting ourselves ready for it in this month of Elul, as we have discussed before, there are many, many different areas on which we need to focus. Firstly, of course, on ourselves. Secondly, on our relationships with others. And thirdly, and in no special order, on our relationship with the Almighty, on our relationship with God. Let's begin today with uh, two small uh, inserts about things that happened on this day in uh, recent Jewish history. And the first one is that today is actually the yard site of the Ben Ishchai. The Ben Ishchai passed away in 1909, so not all that long ago. Famous uh, rabbi. Um, it passing away on the 13th of Elul, which is today. And he was known as Rabbi Yosef Chaim of Baghdad. Yes, from Baghdad. His uh, life spanned from 1835 to 1909. He was a renowned Sfardi Halachic authority and a Kabbalist. And he was known as the Benish Chai, which was pretty common um, to Rabbonim throughout uh, Jewish history that they were called after the name that they gave to their work. So in other words, remembered by the Torah that he taught, remembered by the great halachic response and the things that um, he helped us to understand. Um, he is known as the Ben Ishchai, Rabbi Yosef Chaim of Baghdad. Today is his yard site. And so, of course, on the day of a yard site, as the neshama, as the soul is elevated, we can certainly link with um, these great sages, and uh, there is one that we certainly should try and understand about and learn about and link to as well. It also happens to be that today is the wedding anniversary of the previous Lubavitcher Rebbe. 1897, Rabbi Yosef Yitzchok Schneerson um, got married. This was the sixth Rebbe of Chabad Lubavitch. And he lived from 1880 to 1950, and he married his Rebetzin Nechamadina, who lived from 1882 to 1971. And so, <coughs> excuse me, pardon me, we, uh, you know, in the studio, you have a little red button that you can press if you need to cough. Unfortunately, uh, I have a little ongoing uh, battle with uh, hay fever and seasonal changes and so on, and so the cough is nothing sinister, but um, does come up from time to time. And my little red button um, is not available here. And if I were to press the red button that's in front of me, it would cut me off from being able to speak to you further. So I do apologize. One of those things that we just got to put up with in this time of COVID, in this time of coronavirus, in the time of the pandemic. And uh, haven't we learned so many new and wonderful things during this time? Today, though, I would like to spend the time that we have together exploring the shofar. The shofar. That instrument that has run as a theme, if you think about it, um, throughout Jewish history, longer perhaps than any other symbol of Judaism. And in fact, when we think about Rosh Hashanah, the new year, we all know it as 
Rosh Hashanah. We all know it as the head of the year or the beginning of the new year. And we uh, know that it is the time of uh, the birth of the world and the creation of man. And we know that it is the time of the coronation of the king. And we know that it is the acceptance of God as uh, almighty king. And we know it's the time of introspection. And it's the time that we build up to Yom Kippur. And it's the time of Tshuva and so on. We know all of that. But it's interesting to note that the Torah itself refers exclusively and entirely to uh, Rosh Hashanah as being the day of the shofar, the day of the blowing of the shofar. Yom Truah. It is called the day of the shofar sounds, the day of the Truah. The Truah being the sound of the shofar. Isn't it amazing that our day that we know as New Year, that we know as Rosh Hashanah, that most people would tell you is the most or one of the most uh, prolific and important dates in the Jewish calendar, all hinges around and it's all about the shofar. And now here, just a little word of warning, because um, we're coming up to, if that is true, so Rosh Hashanah hinges around and is all known by the Torah as being the day of the sounding of the shofar, in a year like we have this year, where um, so many people aren't going to be able to get to shul. And there has always been a kind of a fallout of uh, shul attendance on the second day of Rosh Hashanah. This is a year on which the shofar will only be sounded on the second day of Rosh Hashanah. And the reason being that the first day of Rosh Hashanah is a Shabbat, and we do not sound the shofar on a Shabbat. And therefore, Shabbos, this year, first day of Rosh Hashanah, the shofar will not be sounded, which is a time when you would imagine that more people will make themselves available to go to shul, etc. So we've got to muster up a little bit of extra strength and courage and fortitude and make sure that we hear the shofar sounded because, of course, the Torah tells us that's the essence of the day. That's what the day of Rosh Hashanah is all about. So we need to make sure that on the second day of Rosh Hashanah, which is the Sunday, second day Rosh Hashanah, that we make every effort to hear the sounds of the shofar. Now, we've got elaborate plans to make sure that people can hear the shofar, whether it is in the shul services. And every rabbi, I guess, in and around the world, and particularly here in Joburg and around the country, are making every effort to make sure that there are extra possibilities for people to hear the shofar either at shul or to bring the shofar to you. And we have a whole system with volunteers to be to, to go out and make sure that uh, shofar can be heard by everybody, even if there are those who are infirm or those who are uh, with uh, uh, health concerns or elderly who cannot get out of their uh, places of abode, that the shofar should be heard. And, of course, it can be done from a bit of a distance because the object here is to hear it. It's not about actually touching it. It's not about actually um, seeing it. And it's not actually about blowing it. But it's all about hearing the shofar. If this is the essence of the day, we need to muster up some extra strength and make sure that on second day Rosh Hashanah, this year, we hear the shofar. And the sounds of the shofar, of course, are very specific. And the sounds of the shofar conjure up in our minds so much of Jewish history, as we mentioned before, it has a link going way, way further back than the Magen David or than the Menorah, for instance. The Shofar preempts 
or pre um, uh, comes before it. Uh, I don't know what the word is. Uh, predates, of course. Yes, all of the uh, uh, the other symbols of Judaism, shofar, our oldest, our most renowned, our most prolific symbol, and it is the essence of Rosh Hashanah. So perhaps to put under the spotlight today, what is the shofar all about? Where did it actually come from? What is it actually all about? And what is it supposed to do for us? What is it supposed to do for Jews everywhere? And what is it supposed to do for the world at large? Now, if we... Get back to basics with Judaism 101 with Rabbi Michael Katz. Hi and welcome back. Yes, great to be in your company this afternoon. It's Rabbi Michael Katz here on Judaism 101.9. And we're talking about in the build-up to Rosh Hashanah, what is known as the essence of Rosh Hashanah, which is the shofar. And isn't it strange that this shofar should be the very thing, the symbol? I mean, after all, it's a ram's horn. After all, we do something really, really interesting with it. I mean, the idea of blowing a shofar and making this primordial kind of a sound um, through the ram's horn, that that should become something that is so essential, the real pivotal point of Rosh Hashanah, what is it really all about? What does it actually mean? So perhaps if we explore, we go back a little bit and we look in Jewish history for some markers to provide us with some more information and more insight into what the shofar actually represents, I think that it will start making a little bit of a difference in the way we think, in the way we look at it, and in understanding the importance of the shofar in our lives. So let's begin by turning to the very first reference to the shofar in the Torah. In fact, it is part of the Torah reading, essentially, on the second day of Rosh Hashanah. Yes, it's going to uh, line up perfectly with the sounding of the shofar this year, second day only. And that is, if we go back into the history of our forefathers, Isaac, the great sage and the great uh, middle forefather, the middle one of our forefathers, Abram, Isaac, and Jacob, Isaac, Yitzchak, was taken by his father, Avraham Avinu, by Abraham. He was taken up the mountain where he was to supposedly be offered up. Hashem, God, commands him to bring your son, your only one, the one that you love, and take him up the mountain and do this offering this offering that had to be made there. Now, if we look carefully, there wasn't really a direct instruction um, to uh, Abraham Avinu to actually slaughter his son, to take him up the, up the mountain and make an offering. Here he takes him, off goes Abraham together with Isaac, and we know the story. The story was that they went up the mountain, and of course, Yitzchak's life was spared at the very, very last moment, and a ram was caught by its horn in the thicket. I think it's the only reference in Torah to thicket. Um, <laughs> we refer to it always as the thicket. If you think about the thicket, if uh, ever there was a time that we spoke about thicket, it's the chauffeur of the ram's horn being caught in the thicket, and the ram became the proverbial scapegoat. It became the uh, offering instead of Isaac up on the mountain on that fateful day. And so we have so many incredible, incredible images of what the shofar actually 
represents. So we've got to remember, first of all, that Isaac, that Yitzchak, was a grown man at the time. Yes, he was a man of 37 years old at the time. The images that are portrayed by artists or the impression that he's given is here was a little boy. He wasn't a little boy. He was 37 years old. So there was a tremendous amount of what we would call Mesidas Nefesh. There was a tremendous amount of uh, self-abnegation, of um, a lack of self-importance, of an understanding that um, we can and we needed to do everything that Hashem asks from us. Who were the forerunners of it all? Who taught us this incredible Mesiras Nefesh? Abraham Avinu. Abraham, a man of a hundred years old, um, is promised that he's going to have a son. And when he has his son now, 37 years later, he is told to take that very son, who is going to be his future, who is going to carry the banner of everything that he taught into the future and live the life that he wanted his uh, family, his children, his uh, his ancestors to live by, to teach it to the world, to carry that banner forward in the world, that very one you've got to take. And remember, he wasn't yet married. Yitzchak was not yet married. Take him and offer him up on the mountain. There was no logic to it. There was no sense that could have been made of it. But Hashem said, do it. God says, then do it. And the Torah records, Vayash came Abraham Baboker. Abraham gets up early in the morning. He doesn't only do it, he does it with enthusiasm. He's going to take his son and he's going to cut off that line. And he'd lived a hundred years in order to get there. And he was promised that this was going to be the future. There was nothing that made sense about it. But he's told, take him. He wakes up early in the morning with enthusiasm to do the will of Hashem. But spare a thought for Yitzchak. Isaac. Isaac is 37 years old. He's no fool. He works it out immediately. His father is taking him up the mountain. There's nothing to slaughter. It's clear what the intention is. It's clear what's going on. And yet he too walks together with his father. The Torah records twice that they walked together. They went on this mission together. Abraham, Abraham, ready to slaughter his son because God says so, even though it makes no sense. Yitzchak ready to go to the slaughter because God said so and realizing that his father is fulfilling the wish and the will of the Almighty. So the first thing that we understand about the shofar is this element of mesidas nefesh, of total lack of concern with self, of realizing that everything that God asks us to do is for our for our good. And even though there are some things that make no sense to us, some things that seem to us to be perhaps illogical, irrational, whatever it is, we've got to remember from Abraham and Yitzchak and the Shofar is a manifestation of that. It's a representation of that. That's what it really represents. That's what it's all about. But perhaps we've also got to think of the idea of the fact that, uh, like that ram that was caught by its horn there um, in the thicket on that day, that that ram is a replacement. And isn't that something that we hope for on Rosh Hashanah and particularly on Yom Kippur? In fact, when it comes to Yom Kippur, we could even call the name Yom Kippur a day of replacements. It's a day of 
um, something being as a kapara, as an atonement. We talk about atonement. Not sure what that word really means. Um, but the idea of kapara is that it is in place of. It is something instead of. That here we have the ram being there instead of. And yes, for all the things that we have done wrong in the past year, we certainly should deserve some form of admonition of punishment and so on. And yet the uh, shofar tells us, the cry of the shofar tells us that no, God is not going to punish us. There is going to be a replacement because our repentance is going to replace our wrongdoing. And we're going to be able to turn all the negatives into positives. And therefore, what we're going to rather have is the sounds of the shofar reminding us that Hashem is really going to come to the rescue and is really going to save our lives and we are not going to go down and we're not going to be um, um, slaughtered, God forbid, and there's not going to be any offering, but rather the shofar, the sounds of the shofar will remind us that God will, even if it seems to be at the last moment, will come to the rescue. When we think about the sounds of the shofar in terms of Avraham and Yitzchak, we're also reminding God of the fact of just who we are. This isn't just a call out of this interesting instrument. And let's please note that the shape of the shofar is significant. The shape of the shofar is significant in that, number one, we go from the narrow to the broad. If you think about the shape of a shofar, just picture it in your mind. The narrow part is the part that is put up to the mouth that blows that shofar. And there is a broader part, sort of the shape of this horn, is that it's broader at the outlet, let's call it, of the sounds of the shofar. So we're talking about, and we actually mention it in some of the, in one of the verses that we say just before we blow the shofar, uh, on Rosh Hashanah we say, Min hametzar karasika. Anoni Bamerchavka, we say, quoting from Tehillim, from Psalms, that we call to God from narrowness and he answers us from broadness. The idea of the narrow to the broad. We come here with our puny little requests and our uh, seemingly insignificant selves and God answers us in a broad, in an open fashion. It is one of the symbols of the shofar. But the shofar also needs to be bent. It is bent over. A shofar is not a straight, long uh, shaped horn, the shofar is bent, it's curved, and that curve is also, so we've spoken so much during this time about flattening the curve from a Rosh Hashanah, now we've got to curve the curves, we mustn't flatten the curves, they mustn't be flat at all, because the idea of the curve of the shofar is a symbol of how we are supplicating to God, we're bent over, almost Imagine a person who is bending over with a bowed head towards the Almighty. This is a symbol of the shofar. But it also reminds everyone, including a reminder to the Almighty himself, as to who we are. God, just remember that you may not be able to find merits on my scorecard. You may not be able to find so many wonderful things that I personally have done during this past year. But just remember that I am the great, 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 perhaps many times, grandson of Avraham and of Yitzchak. I'm the granddaughter, perhaps, of these wonderful people. They had that Mesiras Nefesh. If you're not going to do it to save 
lives and you're not going to give a wonderful year to the Jewish people and to the entire world in this coming year in my merit just remember we stand here as representatives of the future and representatives of the past and representatives of those who stood us in good stead in the past we stand on the giant on the giant's shoulders the shoulders of these great giants who came before us and both Abraham and Yitzchak had that Mesiras Nefesh. Look at the lives that they led. Look at what they did for the world. And look at the fact that we're sounding the shofar today in their merit as well. Well, God, please remember who we are. We're not here alone. We are those people's embodiment in this world. And therefore, God, if you're not going to do it for us, certainly do it for them. There is another great symbolism to the sounding of the shofar on Rosh Hashanah as well. And that is that part of the shofar sounding is uh, coupled with the idea that we are crowning God as king. Now, this speaks to Rosh Hashanah being the birthday of the world. At the time that the world was created, and according to Rabbi Eliezer, the world's creation began on the 25th day of Elul. Today's the 13th, so in a, a few days' time, we come to the 25th day of Elul, and that was when day one, God created light, and then so on. And therefore, it would work out that Rosh Hashanah was the day on which God made man. So it's the birthday of man. And at the time of the birthday of man, we are celebrating that God became man's king, and there is no king without a people, and there's no people without a king, and therefore, at the same time, the people adopted God as their king, or the whole animal kingdom actually adopted God ultimately as the king of all. And at the time of the coronation of a king, there are trumpet sounds, and what trumpet sounds do we make? We make the trumpet sounds, the sounds of the proclamation of God as king, on the shofar. And if we think about it, the shofar is the most basic kind of a musical instrument because the shofar actually talks to not only God being the king of our world, but the king of the animal world as well. And we use a part of an animal, one of God's creatures, to make those sounds, to make that call, to make that proclamation of God. This is a call that is coming from the entire universe, from all of us calling out to you to once again proclaim you as king. We may not know all the words of the proclamation, but we do know this basic sound. It comes from the depths of our hearts, and it's a call to you, God, to proclaim you as king with great fanfare, with the blazing of the sounds of the shofar. Get back to basics with Judaism 101 with Rabbi Michael Katz. So Rabbi Michael Katz, back with you on Judaism 101.9. Great to be in your company this afternoon. And we're talking about the shofar, the sounding of the shofar, what those sounds mean, what they link us to, what they're supposed to represent. And we discussed a few ideas uh, just before the break. And now one other idea. The idea of the sounds of the shofar are meant to be piercing, humbling cries that... Um, Really, if you, well, I certainly have the experience whenever I've had the opportunity to sound the shofar for people who are older, 
particularly, somehow the sounds of the shofar pierce through to the heart. Somehow they stir us and somehow they get us a little bit trembling, as I guess they're supposed to do, and they bring back all sorts of memories. And at the same time, the sounds of the shofar stir something in our heart which makes us feel um, that the day of judgment is approaching. It makes us feel that there is an awesomeness. It fills us with an awe of God and an awe of the moment and of the occasion and of the time. Um, now, this may be a learned tradition, but it certainly is something that if you think about it, it's a very, very shrill sound that the sound of the shofar um, has. And it's, touches something, it stirs something in the neshama, it stirs something in the soul, and it certainly makes us feel the awesomeness um, of the special occasion. And of course, we're supposed to be focusing on the fact that this day of judgment, which is Yom Adin of uh, Rosh Hashanah is not, and Yom Kippur is not just um, the lip service to say, oh, day of judgment, big deal. But really, we're on trial for our li- lives here. We're talking about some very, very heart-wrenching moments that we are going to be confronting and facing um, in the coming days of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. And therefore, the sounds of the shofar represent that awesomeness that we are supposed to have. We'll be back with you for a little bit more right after this. Get back to basics with Judaism 101 with Rabbi Michael Katz. Yes, great to be back with you. We're talking about the shofar and the sounding of the shofar, and particularly the sounding of the shofar when it is obligatory for us to hear it. And, of course, there is some debate as to who is obligated to hear the sounding of the shofar, but it's only obligatory on Rosh Hashanah. Everybody agrees that all men, all people, men, guys, over the age of bar mitzvah, have to hear the sound of the shofar. It's not an option. But there are many who say that um, women, by the fact that they have taken it upon themselves to hear the shofar over many, many years, are also obligated, equally obligated, and people of the great caliber of uh, the Lubavitcher Rebbe and his uh, um, a tremendous insight into what these sounds and what it all really did for us um, was uh, very, very um, involved in making sure that men, women, and children, that everybody should be in shul for the sound of the shofar. And if you can't get to shul, of course, to at least make sure that you hear those sounds. And, of course, as we said, on the second day of Rosh Hashanah this year, that's the time of the obligation. The time of tradition, of course, is to sound the shofar even now during the month of Elul, with the exception of the day before Rosh Hashanah and, of course, on the Shabbos that are in between Rosh Chodesh, Elul, and Rosh Hashanah. And those are the only days on which we do not have the sounding of the shofar. So very much incumbent upon us. But it's not only something that is backward-looking, and it's not only about the now, it's not about the past and the present alone, but it's also about the future. Because one of the very, very important um, things that the sounds of the shofar and the shofar blowing itself and the hearing of the shofar really um, speaks of or speaks to is the coming of Mashiach. And yes, when we think about the sounding of the great shofar that we are told about that will happen when Mashiach comes, well, this is the sounds of the imminent coming of Mashiach. And it sounded at this time because 
when better for Mashiach to come, I guess, than at a time when the Jewish people are turning towards God, turning towards each other, turning towards themselves, at a time of introspection, at a time of um, care and share and doing all these wonderful and beautiful things that we're supposed to be doing now in the build-up to proclaiming God as our king, well, there's going to be the proclamation of the king, the Melech HaMashiach, that will take place through the sound of the shofar as well. And so it doesn't only stir in us the uh, awesomeness of judgment and it doesn't only stir in us the ideas of things that are past and are the history of the shofar, but actually looking forward to the future. And we're also told that at the time of the sounding of the shofar, there will be the resurrection of the dead. We're talking about it being a symbol of coming alive, of being alive. It is not only breath, but it is blowing, the blowing from the innards. We know that when man was created, there was a blowing rather than just a speaking. God created most things just by saying things. When it came to the creation of man, it was by blowing. And the blowing of the shofar will herald the arrival not only of Mashiach, but the resurrection of the dead as well in the times of Mashiach. And so if we think about the awesomeness of this Yom Truah, the sound of the shofar is essential. It is empirical. It is the dominant feature of the whole of Rosh Hashanah. And hopefully you will be there and you'll be available to hear it. Hear those sounds. Allow them to touch your soul. Allow them to remind you of things in the past. Allow them to help you to proclaim God as your king once again. Allow them to stir tshuva within you. And allow them to enable you to look forward to the coming of Mashiach. I want to wish you a great Shabbat up ahead, a great rest of the week. I look forward to being back with you same time, same place, next week on this here station, Chai FM, and on Judaism 101.9.